You don't usually put coins in public bathroom concession machines. It's not your thing. Sure, you've looked at them with some passing curiosity. You've seen them at lots of truck stops, bars, and pubs, usually while relieving yourself and looking for something to rest your eyes on. But you'd never had your thoughts actually fix on the actual things inside, the word descriptions of the products. As far as you know, you've never seen the words Red Rooster Performance until now. You've not reached for some coins and paid for anything in a public toilet before until now. What's the harm of it anyway, you think? Your coins drop into the metal chambers behind the glowing box on the wall, and out from the bottom, a small packet emerges noiselessly below. It's clean and red, with the words Red Rooster written in bold. You pick it up and examine it, only for a moment as you don't want to draw attention to yourself. You note the cartoon outline of a rooster before you disappear the packet in your fist. Normally you would have put something small like that in a pocket and forgotten about it. You might find it later a moist ball of laundry lint, but you are wearing swimming trunks that are not fitted with pockets. You've noticed that you forget a lot more things now, now that you're older, and not just the kind of things that accidentally run through the laundry. Last week you had insisted to employees at a local hotel that your glasses had been stolen. The ones that your wife Laura reminded you were too expensive for a pensioner. You remember explaining to them in a loud voice that your sunglasses were prescription when you happened to accidentally discover them perched on the crown of your head. You quietly withdrew from the security desk without drawing any further attention to yourself. Last year at the airport lounge in Cincinnati, before you and Laura walked through customs on your way to Mazatlan. Your sister had said that you were a youngish, older guy. Really? You had said in response, wanting to understand how that could be. Thoughts of dying was something that had become a thing for you then. So arming yourself with contrary evidence to your own demise was useful. Something you could store away like a snack food to binge on later when you were feeling frightened by the pain in your pancreas or a wheezing in your chest. That was a year ago now, and even though your sister might have been right in Cincinnati, it was still a year gone, and Mazatlan wasn't exactly a healthy lifestyle. You worry about dying more now. You want to tell Laura that it's something that you think about, but you don't want to because it might worry her, and you already worry her enough. You sometimes wondered if your sister was joking about what she'd said. Her compliments were always followed by something that was meant to keep your head from swelling, she said. After she told you that you were younger, she called you a doofus for wearing a leather jacket, and that black leather would look foolish on the beach. You don't think she remembers that the coat had belonged to Dad, and that the jacket and a video camera that no longer worked were all that was left to remember him by. You don't even recall what he sounded like now that 30 years had passed. But when you think of your father, it reminds you that there was a time when there was a dignity to being a man. Don't believe your own bullshit was one of the things that had impressed upon you. When you folded the leather coat on the seat in the airport lounge, you had decided that wearing his coat was little like believing in bullshit. You wouldn't need it where you were going to anyway, where it was warm, where there was sea breeze. Ripping the red rooster package open, you notice a tiny white tablet that sticks to your sweaty finger as you drop from the package. 
You are craning the tablet to your mouth when a small boy comes round the corner wearing red shorts and sunglasses which are too big for his face. What's that, he asks, pointing to the tablet which drooled off your finger and bounced onto the tiled floor. Just a little dust, you say, picking up the tablet and swallowing it quickly. That's gross, says the boy, his nose curling up to a small sponge in the middle of his face. A green popsicle stain streaked the center line of his tongue. You think of something sensible you might say to the boy, but you decide to ignore him, remembering that men are not to speak to children, especially as you are wearing swimming trunks. Like the boys, your trunks are red. You had bought them two decades ago during a period in your life when you were experimenting with fitness. You can't see them from below a swelling of your gut that obscures the view of anything below your navel. But you know they're red, and that they're called speedos. The salesman had told you that they were built for aquatic aerodynamics. Well, I need all the help I can get, you had said, and chose the red ones. Speed red. Performance red. You're a loser, said the kid with the green tongue and pushes past you. It impresses you how matter-of-fact children can be, and that he might have a point. It was rude anyway to have ignored him. Even a child deserves to be acknowledged, to be recognized as a somebody. Outside, the toilets are sheltered from the rest of the hotel pool area by a strip of shoulder-height hedgery. You stand here to allow the sun to build up its presence on your shoulders. There's a slight smell of sewage from the toilets, but this is normal. You also have a smell at the timeshare that you and Laura had bought as your retirement home. You had mentioned this once on one of the rare occasions that the property manager had come. He said that you should feel lucky that you don't have cockroach. The thought of this made your nostrils flare out in disgust. All concerns about the smell of sewage had vanished as though he'd uttered an incantation. Each precise enunciation of the syllables worked its effect. First cock, then a, and finally roach. Cockroach. And the smell became insignificant. The pool was busy. New Year's celebrations brought many tourists into Mazatlan. And this particular hotel had a good reputation and was close enough to the beach for a view of the Pacific Ocean. You and Laura have rented a room here. This is not the first time. You like the feeling of pretending to be a tourist, to get mixed into the escapism of it all. You just have to take a bus and bingo, we're on vacation, she would say. Do you know how much people would have to pay to fly down here and get a load of this, you would said as you pushed Laura along in her wheelchair? and gaze at the facade of the hotel rise up as you approach. You remember thinking how easy it is to please Laura as she pushed the folded wheelchair deeper into the shrubbery. Her diabetes didn't keep her from home, and the wheelchair was just an inconvenience. She's not really disabled. She's usually in pain, but she perseveres. She's a happy person. You admire for these reasons, but you often forget this. All clear, she said, having finished hiding the chair. Her smile was the biggest thing on her face, except for the enormous gold-highlighted sunglasses. You smile at her and feel love for her. Come on, she said. Let's get a suntan. Walking along, you had noticed the slight limp that Laura denies that she has, and felt a flash of worry that perhaps she has been coming to the hotel for you, and perhaps there are many other things that she had been doing in a sneaky way without you noticing, simply because she loved you. This worries you, and you wish you could do more for her. You scan the pool. 
The blue of the pool's plastic lighting had always made you feel good and clean and fresh, like a new summer holiday. You knew that it was an illusion, that if the pool were a different color, with a green plastic lining, for example, it would reveal it all to be a sham. But it wasn't green. It was blue, and everything was perfect. You can see Laura at the far end of the pool framed in her wide-brimmed white hat. Her paint foot is raised on a rolled towel, and you think she's sleeping again. Hey, mister, what are you looking at? It was the boy. He was taking your hand. You pulled it free quickly, as if from the teeth of a steel trap. You can see a woman's glare bearing down on you as she approaches. Billy, she says. She is addressing the boy, but her eyes remain riveted on you with a glare. It's your swimming trunks that seem to be your focus. You know there's been an escaped leopard, says the boy. Don't acknowledge him. Ignore him for safety's sake. It comes from one of the drug lord's mansions, he says to you. Billy, you come here this instance. You form the shape of a smile on your face and give a weak wave to the woman as she put an arm around the boy and turns to the pool area, looking over her shoulder at your swimming trunks. You can appreciate being concerned for the boy, what in this day and age, but it does occur to you that there might be the benefit of the doubt to consider. Billy's mother, or whoever she was, did seem a bit overly disgusted by your presence, which was a little unfair as you're not the only one wearing swimming trunks. And you weren't hiding behind the bushes if that's what she was thinking. You were just looking. Still, better move away. Back into the pool area. Next to the pool, there's a restaurant. You think it's supposed to be decked out in the style of a French cafe. Waiters come to the table wearing aprons and take their orders with a kind of panache. You wonder if it's a company policy that the waiters wear pencil mustaches. You notice a young couple looking towards you smiling, then turning back to their conversation. But it occurs to you how nice it is to be seen that they probably think you're on a vacation with a large family and this is how the rich spend New Year's. They are having a laugh amongst themselves that somehow makes you feel a part of. It occurs to you that you're not often seen or acknowledged in this way and that being older might be the reason. The young man has a hairstyle that has a particular flair to it so that you can discern a beveled edge along the sides. The woman across from him has a sort of gazelle-like body that drapes over her chair and angles over to caress his tan forearms. As you know, you're mostly bald. Hair arouses memories of younger times. You catch a thought of yourself enmeshed in a woman's arms and legs, but you don't know why. Hey, there now, you say to yourself, quickly gutting your thoughts to something Laura had said about preferring bald men. The couple flash another smile in your direction, which causes your hand to rise in a weak wave. They continue to laugh, but they don't wave back, which is rude, but young people tend to be nowadays. At the far end of the pool, you stop to look across Laura. You can see that she's definitely asleep. Her mouth is slightly ajar, and her head is tilted in a sort of I'm-asleep angle. As you stand there feeling the traces of sweat beads under the heat of the sun, you consider the freshness of the pool. Some of the swimmers off to the side are looking over to you. They're smiling and laughing as one might do seeing someone ready to dive into a pool, only to back away. But you have no intention of swimming, not yet. But again, you enjoy being regarded, to be seen, even to be laughed at in a good-natured way. Not far from the pool, you see the golfing pro looking over to you. 
He raises his hand over his eyes and beckons you over with his arm. Down a short flight of stairs, the golf shop is having a small outdoor sale of last year's merchandise. You don't know the golf pro's name, but you see he's wearing brown tartan pants, which seems old-fashioned to you. But you know that fashion makes things that were once old, new, and ironic more clever than you are. You look great, says the pro. It surprises you considering the Christmas holidays, but you've never actually weighed yourself in a keep-track-of sort of way. Welcome, he says, taking your hand in a handshake, and then putting his other hand over the top as if to make the point about being welcome. This all surprises you a little, because he knows you and Laura are locals and can't afford much. Occasionally you might visit the driving range, but never a full round of golf. Still, it's nice to be mistaken for someone who has little money to spend. Can I entice you to some of the merchandise? The golf pro sweeps his hand across three stands of clothing racks, two sets of misshapen shoes with gold trim, and an awkward-looking mannequin wearing an argyle sweater, despite the blazing sun. What a shame, says the golf pro, before you have a chance to decide on a good reason why you're not in the market for golf fashions. He returns his hand over yours, which still seems a little familiar. You think you should at least remember his name. And what about your wife, your children? Before you answer, you remind yourself that you and Laura had decided long ago that if you couldn't offer a better life than your own, then you wouldn't have children. This is what you say when people ask. But you could also say something about global warming being what it is, and it seems like the right choice, probably. I have no children, you say truthfully. No, says the golf pro. You notice that he has a pencil mustache, just like the cafe waiters, and that he's looking in your eyes as if he has discovered something about you. No, we don't have children, not men like us, he says. You wonder about this sudden connection he's making, that maybe he means men that are avid golfers. But you're sure you've told him in the past that you're not big into golf. The way he's holding your hand tighter now makes you withdraw with a quick, out-of-the-fire sort of flicking movement, which you regret immediately because you see that it's upset him. You hear yourself offering to buy some golf balls. Yes, you decide. This would help smooth things over. The golf pro smiles. He steps smoothly over the golf shoes to collect a packet of balls and gracefully glides back towards you. His movements seem to you like a cat covering distances quickly but effortlessly. He places the balls in your hand. You regret asking for balls now as it seems to have stirred something in him based on an innuendo that you didn't want to make and he was being treated as a secret message that you didn't intend. But you're glad when he said, keep them, it's my little gift. Your swimming trunks have no pockets, and the last of your money went into the machine. You think it might be time for a swim now as you barefoot back up the stairs. Or maybe Laura would be ready for one of her strawberry margaritas. You could have a cerveza. You were thinking about cerveza, when you feel a smack to your gut like you've just been hit by a football after a ready-set hut. But this isn't a football. It's the head of a child that has barreled into you. You assume it's the kid with the green tongue as you feel yourself pushed back off the step. You're surprised in a slow-motion kind of way how much force the face of a small boy could have. You notice golf balls rising up against a blue sky. They are orange balls, not white, ironic and clever orange. Don't move. Allow the pain. Feel it. Push your tongue through one of the missing gaps in your teeth. Sorry, mister, 
That's the boy. Don't respond. Concentrate with coping. Spanish voices. The golf pro was shouting orders in Spanish, but now he's close to you saying something soothing and gentle in a way that Laura might. He's also placing his hand on your chest in a way that Laura might. This troubles you, but it does keep you from thinking of the pain. You work through pain. You remember your father saying, sport, he told you, it's like life. We don't lose our dignity because of pain. We have a dignity because we experience it. Just lie there. Feel the pain. Your father had died of pancreatic cancer without a complaint. He died never losing its dignity, never needing anything he might have offered. So he never did. Lie there. You don't need anything. You hear a woman crying, but the golf pro quickly silences her with a curt Spanish that sounds like a scolding. But then there are others that are crying quietly. They think you are dead. It feels good to be grieved for, to be seen, to be human. Are those his balls, someone was saying? It's not just his balls, is it? Someone adds as if to say this isn't just about golf balls, but a man is down and who knows how bad it is. But by now you know it's not bad. You have an old wound that you got when you were a kid, but you're not really hurt. You feel the old injury, but the pain is starting to fade. Your injury is an old one that you got clearing brush for your stepfather. It turned out to be a torn ligament in your back. It allowed you to miss school for a week, which suited you fine, but what you really wanted was for your stepfather to apologize. Lying there on the steps, you realize that the day you cleared those leaves was the last time you laid under the ground waiting for someone to find you. You had hoped your mum would have found you, or the police. Maybe they'd come across your foot peeking out from the leaves that the wind would have built up around you. And you would have been forced to say, yeah, yeah, it was your stepfather who forced you into clearing the acre of leaves only with a rake. And yeah, you did tell him that you could have used the lawnmower. You realize now, lying there on the steps, a youngish older guy, that it was really your dead dad that you'd hoped would have found you. But no one ever did come across you. Until now. He's obviously being stimulated, someone is saying, as you start making sounds like you're coming into consciousness. The golf pro appears before you. You feel embarrassed for him as he's concentrating his face at yours. He must be a simpleton, as there's obviously really nothing wrong with you. You get up slowly, happy to see people are smiling, and that some others are laughing. You don't think it's that funny, but you know how it is when you think something awful has happened, but then suddenly it turns out okay. Some of them are pointing at your racing speedos, but it doesn't matter. You consider waiting for the hotel staff to come and maybe offer a free meal or drink or something. But you notice that people are really starting to stare and laugh now and pointing your direction. It's a bit of a scene, you decide, but you appreciate their relief. You might have fallen down in life, but you can still have dignity. You're a lesson to them. By the pool, you see that Laura is awake and looking over to you, smiling with her where-have-you-been look on her face. Hi, you say. You look beautiful. Hi, she says. Thank you. Is that why you have a boner? You can't see below the expanse of your gut, so you stand there for a moment trying to imagine the feeling of having an erect penis. This must be the feeling, but you're not sure. Except for your back injury, your body has over the years become more of a concept than a thing you feel. The image of a red rooster disappears from your thoughts as you escape into the pool. You sink below the surface. You've taken a deep breath and decide you can stay down for as long as you like. The cool waters feel good and it takes its effect, fresh and crisp. 
You squint your eyes through to see the blue of the pool. This is precisely where you belong for as long as it can be, until you can't. You feel your head clear the water and you take a breath. Laura is smiling at you with the same, you are perplexing but I love you face. Well, she says. You don't reply. The thought of a leopard now enters your mind, roaming somewhere out there, free and dangerous. I like it, she said. I know you say, smiling back into her eyes. Don't move. Be still. <laughs>